Hello and welcome to A History of Alexander the Great Remastered, Episode 9, Taking Tyre. Firstly, I'd like to deal with the immediate consequences of Isis, basically where people went. Alexander stayed in the region for a few days. Although he was injured in the battle, he visited the wounded and gave a great military funeral for the dead. During this, he praised any man who he had seen distinguish himself. It is through relatively small acts, such as these, that Alexander was able to receive not only the loyalty of his men, but also their love. While Alexander was being adored by his troops, things were not going so well for Darius. Darius kept fleeing through the night with a few followers, while Alexander turned back. Small parties of Persians began joining up, until the total force was 4,000 strong. They headed past the Euphrates River to consolidate his position, and, if need be, muster a new Grand Army. Several deserters to Darius, including Amyntas, fled along with 8,000 other Persian survivors. They headed to the region of Tripolis in Phoenicia, a confederation of the three cities of Tyre, Sidon and Aradus, Tripolis being Greek for three cities. The centre of the confederation, Tripolis, would become the modern city of Tripoli in Lebanon. From here, they sailed to Cyprus, burning all ships that they couldn't use. Probably 4,000 of these, and 4,000 other survivors, ended up under the control of the Spartan king Aegis III, who you'll remember was planning a rebellion in Greece. Aegis did, around this time, send a force to capture Crete, which seems to have had some success. Pharnabasis, meanwhile, began securing the few areas he controlled, fearing of rebellion among the Greek islands, after news of Alexander's victory at Isis arrived. Amyntas took the other 4,000 Persians to Egypt, where he claimed to be acting under orders from Darius. This was not true. After taking the crucial fortress of Persulium, he advanced to Memphis. After being joined by many Egyptians, he led an attack on the governor of Egypt, Mazakes. Amyntas was victorious, but his men grew overconfident, and Mazakes was able to defeat and kill Amyntas. Having covered where people went, it's time to continue Alexander's narrative. After placing governors in the area, he advanced south through modern Syria, heading into Phoenicia, the area of modern Lebanon, Israel, and Palestine. As most of the kings of Phoenicia and Cyprus had fled the area, it was left to Strassen, the priests of Aradus, and the surrounding area to surrender to Alexander by handing him a gold crown. While in the surrounding area, specifically at the town of Marathus, envoys arrived from Darius, requesting peace. Darius started by stating his casus belli, his case for war, to justify 
raising an army and attacking Alexander, he said that Philip and Artaxerxes were on friendly terms. But when Arces ascended to the throne, Philip was guilty of unprovoked aggression towards Arces. Once Darius, in turn, ascended to the throne, Alexander did not send envoys to resume the friendship, but instead attacked Darius. So Darius was merely defending himself. While Darius was defending himself, most of this is simply false. There is no documentation of an alliance between Philip and Artaxerxes. While admittedly Philip started the path to war by making an alliance with Hermias of Artanius, who had rebelled against the Persians in 342, they were both guilty of aggression. After justifying his actions, he requested Alexander return his wife, mother and children. In return for this, he was willing to become Alexander's ally. Alexander sent envoys to reply to Darius. Firstly, he justifies his war, highlighting the unprovoked invasion of Greece by the Persians, which saw the destruction of Athens. That aid was sent to those rebelling against Philip, that Darius organised the assassination of Philip, that Darius helped Bagoas murder Arces to illegally take the throne, and then sent money to Greece and Macedonia, because he was trying to turn Alexander's friends against him, and he was encouraging the Greeks to revolt. I'm sure you won't be surprised that the Spartans took the money. Anyway, just as there are mistakes in Darius's Casus Belli, there are two with Alexander's. As you'll remember from earlier, the Persian invasion of Greece was provoked, as Athens encouraged rebellion in the Ionian cities. This letter by Alexander is the only account saying that Darius organised the assassination of Philip, and, as you'll remember from earlier, Darius was not involved in the murder of Arces. After this, Alexander addressed the issue of Darius's proposal. Alexander's view was that he was the victor out of the two. He should be dictating terms to Darius, not the other way round. Alexander said that he was the master of the Persian Empire, not Darius, and that Darius should come to him as the lord of the continent of Asia. He should address him as the king of all Asia, not as an equal. Everything Darius owned was now Alexander's. If Darius wanted anything, he should let Alexander know in the proper terms. If not, Alexander would take steps to deal with Darius as a criminal. If Darius wanted to dispute this, he should prepare to fight, as Alexander was coming to find him. Very humble, Alexander. Very humble. Before Alexander could go find Darius, he had other things to do, namely secure the coast. After dealing with some Greek envoys to Darius, who fell into Parmenio's hands, Alexander left Marathus, heading south. Both Bibulus and Sidon surrendered to Alexander. Sidon was particularly eager to surrender. Something to note, Bibulus, as some of you may know, is the origin of the word Bible. The Greek word for papyrus was Byblos, 
as they received their papyrus from Biblos. The word Bible is therefore derived from the word Biblos, or the papyrus book. As I have said, I love trivia. Now, with two of the three cities of Tripolis under his control, it was time for the third, Tyre. Representatives from the city went to meet Alexander. Alexander thanked them for this, and told them he wished to enter the city to sacrifice to Heracles. Tyre possessed a temple to Melkart, whom Alexander identified as Heracles, and this was supposedly the most ancient temple to Heracles in the world. The town was willing enough to accept Alexander's wishes, but they did not want any Persian or Macedonian in their town, feeling that this would be the course most likely to keep them safe, as they were by no means sure who would win the war. This would not do for Alexander. This would not do at all. There was only one possible course of action. He would have to take Tyre. Now, I'm sure you're wondering, why? There were other settlements that Alexander had bypassed, such as Sileon in southern Anatolia. But this could not be done with Tyre. The biggest reason is simply because Tyre was a big, very important city. Bearing this in mind, Alexander explained to his men why they must take Tyre. With hindsight, we know that Alexander was hugely successful, but at the time, it wasn't clear things would turn out like that. Alexander admitted he wasn't confident of advancing into Egypt while Persia controlled the sea and he wasn't confident of chasing Darius with a neutral tie behind him, with Greece and Cyprus still controlled by the Persians, especially combined with the situation in Greece, specifically Aegis planning a rebellion. If he advanced in the direction of Babylon, it would be possible for the Persians to regain control of the coast, and would allow them to transfer the war to Greece. However, if they did take Tyre, then they would control all of Phoenicia. If that happened, it was very likely the Phoenician fleet would defect to Alexander. This would allow Cyprus to be taken quite easily, and it would be a simple matter to take Egypt. This would stop the feeling of uneasiness about Greece, increase Macedonian prestige, and not only clear the Persians from the sea, but the whole continent up to the Euphrates. His officers were convinced. This was encouraged by several dreams. The Tyrians dreamed that Apollo announced he was unhappy with what had taken place in the city, and he was deserting to Alexander. The Tyrians, as a result, fastened cords to his statue, nailed it to its base, and reviled him as an Alexander supporter. Alexander had two dreams, one that he was chasing a satyr and eventually caught it. The soothsayers divided the word satyros into two, giving the meaning, Tyre will be thine. There was another dream in which Heracles invited Alexander to enter Tyre. The soothsayers interpreted this as signifying that Tyre would be taken, 
but it would take much effort. As intense effort was characteristic of everything Heracles did. Although, in Arian's words, dreams or no dreams, it was obvious enough that the siege of Tyre would be a tremendous undertaking. See Alexander, Book 2, Chapter 18. For those of you who aren't familiar with the geography of Tyre in the mid-4th century, and I can't imagine why you wouldn't be, Tyre was an island. An island defended by 45 to 60 metre, 150 to 200 foot, high walls, in a sea which the Persians controlled, while the Macedonians had virtually no navy. This is why the siege would be a tremendous undertaking, why the siege would last seven months, why this episode is called Taking Tyre. Alexander began work in January 332. He needed to take this island, located half a mile offshore. His first step was to build a mole, a causeway, to the island. Near the shore were patches of mud with water over them. The water got deeper towards the city. The Macedonians used heavy stones to create a foundation for the mole and placed timber on top. The mud made it easy to drive piles in and acted as a binding material, keeping all the stones in place. The men worked hard. Things were going well. The ground was shallow and there was no opposition. But as they got further out to sea, Alexander's troubles began. The Tyrians kept making raids on the mole, rendering its completion impossible. The Macedonians brought two siege towers onto the mole, with animal skins and hides on them, to prevent damage from incendiary missiles and to protect the workers from arrows. If the Macedonians were lucky, perhaps the siege towers could be used to fend off the Tyrians. This didn't work. The Tyrians countered by sending boats out full of inflammable material and alighting them at the last moment. This destroyed the siege towers. With these out of the way, the Tyrians swarmed out of the city to devastate the mole. So, back to square one for Alexander. The mole was to be rebuilt, but wider, so there was space for more siege towers. Fresh siege engines were also to be constructed. With this in progress, Alexander returned to Sidon, as the other thing he had learned from this first disastrous attempt at a siege was that if he wanted to take the city, he needed a fleet. A few kings of Phoenicia, at this point, with news coming in that Alexander had captured the region, defected from the Persian fleet and sailed to join Alexander. These included Gerostrasos, the father of Strasson, Prince of Aradus, who previously surrendered to Alexander. They brought a total of 80 Phoenician warships. At the same time, the patrol ships from Rhodes and nine other ships joined him. Once news of the result of the Battle of Isis, and that Alexander controlled all of Phoenicia, spread, the Cypriot kings sailed for Sidon too, bringing with them 120 ships. This gave Alexander a fleet of over 200 ships, and weakened the Persian fleet, 
This was the turning point of the siege. After this, Alexander had a brief campaign in the anti-Lebanon mountains, while the siege engines were being completed. Plutarch recounts part of this campaign, where his former tutor, Lyshkimachus, couldn't keep up with the pace. So, Alexander, unwilling to leave the man behind, although Lyshkimachus said he should do just that, ended up camping out with only a handful of men in a barren wasteland. The party made a small raid on an enemy outpost to collect some fire, and they spent the rest of the night in safety. After only ten days of campaigning, Alexander subdued the region, and returned to Sidon to find 4,000 reinforcements from the Peloponnese. It was at this point he made the next assault on the city. His fleet sailed for Tyre in close order. Alexander himself was on the right wing, towards the sea. Most of the kings of Cyprus and Phoenicia were on the left, which was under the control of Craterus. When news came that Alexander was attacking by sea, I'm sure the Tyrians would have been thrilled. Their enthusiasm would have been dampened once they saw Alexander's shiny new fleet. The Tyrians, understandably, declined to attack, preferring to block the entrance to their harbour with their ships, just as Nicanor had done during the siege of Miletus. When it became clear that the Tyrians would not launch an attack, a few Phoenician ships tried ramming the ships in the harbour. They sunk a few, but this was all the action that would take place for the day. The fleet sheltered close to the coast. The next day, Alexander ordered Tyre to be blockaded. The Cypriot ships, under the control of Andromachus, were placed by the northern harbour, north of the Mole, and the Phoenician fleets, under Alexander's command, were by the southern harbour, south of the Mole. Once the blockade was in place, Alexander began gathering the siege engines for the assault on the Mole, and placed someone's ships. The Tyrians placed wooden towers on the battlements overlooking the mole, using fire arrows on the ships and other missiles on the boats. They also threw stones into the water near the walls. All this meant that the Macedonian boats were fearful of approaching the walls. Alexander wanted to remove these stones, but it proved quite tricky. For one, the men could only work from the boat decks, which were unsteady. Secondly, the Tyrians were a real nuisance. They kept moving the bows of the Macedonian triremes with specially armoured vessels, and kept cutting the anchor cables, so it was impossible for the boats to stay in one place. Alexander sent out smaller ships to protect the trireme anchor ropes, but the Tyrians merely sent out divers to cut the cables. Fed up, the Macedonians used chains instead of ropes. That stopped the divers. From the mole, they fastened rope around the rocks and hauled them out, then using cranes to drop them into deeper water out of the way. By now, the water by the city was clear, and the boats could approach without fear. The Tyrians were now in real trouble. 
Since the blockade started, the Tyrians had placed sails over the harbour entrances, so the Macedonians couldn't see what they were up to. They decided they would sneak out of the shelter and attack the Cypriot ships by the North Harbour, while Alexander was resting in his quarters near the Phoenician ships. A few ships were sent out in complete silence until they came into sight of the Cypriot ships, when they cheered and bore down on the enemy as fast as they could. The surprise attack proved effective, as many of the Cypriot ships were unmanned, but although they had timed it perfectly, as Alexander had retired to his quarters that day, he had not taken his usual rest, and instead returned almost immediately to the fleet. As soon as Alexander heard that the Tyrians were attacking, he at once ordered his troops to battle stations. Most of the Phoenician fleet was to watch the South Harbour, while a few ships sailed round the island with Alexander to surprise the raiders. Those on the island saw what was happening and tried warning their comrades, shouting, screaming, making signals, but the Tyrian crews couldn't hear or see them. Once they saw Alexander, they made for the harbour at their fastest speed, but it was too late. A few escaped, but most ships were rammed. The loss of life from this skirmish was not terrible. Most swam to safety when they realised it was too late. The real importance of this skirmish is that the Tyrian fleets could no longer defend the city, and so Alexander prepared for the final series of attacks. From the mole, siege engines couldn't make much headway, so an attack was made on the northern side of the island, using siege artillery from the boats, but once again, the Macedonians had no luck. An attack on the southern side was made next, and Alexander finally found a weak spot. A considerable piece of the wall began to give way, and a breach was made, although only a small one. Alexander made a tentative assault, but it was repulsed. Three days later, once Alexander had good weather, his forces set out to work on widening the breach. Once sufficient damage had been done, he withdrew the artillery and sent forward two vessels with gangways, which were to be thrown down across the breach. In unison with this, several triremes were sent around to the other two harbours on the off chance that they could break through the defences where the Tyrians were otherwise engaged. Other boats were placed around the city, with archers in them, so that the defenders could be attacked from every position possible. The ships went under the city wall, the gangways were lowered, and the battle began. Alexander led this assault in person, and the fighting was fierce. But, for the first time in the long siege, the Macedonians had firm ground under their feet, rather than being faced by a daunting, seemingly impenetrable ascent. It showed. Without much difficulty, this section was the first to fall under Macedonian control. Soon, the neighbouring towers were under control, and the sections of the wall between them too. The Phoenicians by the southern harbour were equally successful, smashing their way through the booms, defending the ships and the ships themselves. The Cypriots were even more successful, as there were no booms at all, 
they simply sailed right into the harbour, gaining control of that region of the city quickly. For clarification, if you imagine a picture of a boat you may have drawn as a small child, it may have had a sail shaped as a right-angled triangle. A boom is the pole along the bottom side of this triangle. With the walls under Macedonian control, the Tyrians fled into the centre of their city. Many went to the temple of Agenor, reputed to be the founder of Tyre and Sidon, where they made their last stand, a fight they did not win. By this point, the Macedonians were in total control of the city, and seven months of pent-up frustrations were less out. Insults, such as the Tyrians slitting the throats of prisoners from Sidon in full view of the Macedonian army and throwing their bodies into the sea, were avenged. 8,000 Tyrians were killed, compared to only 400 Macedonians. As Emachinus, the king of Tyre, and several Carthaginian visitors fled to the temple of Melkart. Carthage was originally a Phoenician colony. They still sent a tenth of their income to Melkart, and had promised help for the Tyrians, but couldn't as they were bogged down in their own war against Syracuse. Alexander spared those who had fled to the temple of Melkart, but the rest of the population, some 30,000, were all sold into slavery. Alexander finally took Tyre, in August 332. Before moving on from the siege of Tyre, I have three points to make. Firstly, Plutarch has another story about the siege of Tyre, which is interesting, but didn't really fit into the narrative I just gave, which was mostly Arian. It goes that Aristander offered a sacrifice, and, after inspecting the omens, confidently announced that the city would be captured within the month. This announcement was greeted with laughter, as that day was the last of the month. Alexander saw that Aristander was at a loss to explain the prophecy, and to uphold the credibility of the prophecy, he announced that that day should not be counted as the 30th of the month, but the 28th. Alexander then launched a fiercer attack than he had planned, and as the fighting grew hotter, more and more troops joined in. Eventually the Tyrians gave up, and this is how the Macedonians took the city, in the same month as the prophecy. My second point is that Arian reports that Darius replies to Alexander's letter from earlier, during the siege of Tyre. Plutarch doesn't relate the story for a few more months, but I'll stick it here anyway. So, having his first offer rejected from Alexander, Darius offered 10,000 talents in exchange for his mother, wife and children. Darius further offered all the territory west of the Euphrates, right up to the Aegean, to Alexander, and said that they should share their friendship and alliance by marriage between Alexander and Darius's daughter. Bearing in mind the tricky circumstances we discussed before the Siege of Tyre, this was not a bad offer. Parmenio announced that he would have been happy to end the war on these terms if he were Alexander and be done with adventure. Alexander replied, that is what I should do, were I Parmenio. See Arian, Book 2, Chapter 25. 
Alexander wrote that he had no need of Darius's money, nor was there any need for him to accept only part of Asia instead of the whole. He was already in control of all Asia, including its treasure, and if he wished to marry Darius's daughter, he would do just that, whether Darius liked it or not. Alexander concluded by saying, if Darius wanted kindliness and consideration, he should come to Alexander in person. Upon hearing of this, Darius once again prepared for war. Diodorus and Curtius relate a story that Darius once again asked for terms before the Battle of Gaugamela, but this is unlikely. My third and final point is that if you wish to visit Tai today, you will find it is no longer an island. Over time, the mole has transformed itself into a causeway, connecting the island permanently to the mainland. That's quite cool. Remember to visit us online should you have enjoyed the show at thehistoryofpodcast.com. You can also visit us on our various social media pages, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, twitter.com forward slash thehistoryofpod, and youtube.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast. You can also send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next week when Alexander prepares to invade Egypt.